If he would have told me when I talked to him, look, I had sex with her that night, she spent the night, and then we fell asleep, and then we woke up and I had sex with her again in the morning, I would have closed this case that day. Is that by saying that, by saying, by blaming it on the jury pool, you're essentially saying, we're not going to stop sexual assault, period. I mean, by taking that tag, they're essentially saying to perpetrators everywhere, you are free to rape because we think it's pretty hard to prove these cases. Was it a criminal sexual assault? No. Is he guilty of being, you know, less than a gentleman? Absolutely. Who in the hell is writing their opinion in a report, but I'm hoping it's not our agency. So that night, we had planned on getting together and going over um, to his house to pretty much network. That was the plan, to get over there, do some networking, because we knew that he knew some people. So um, I ended up before that going out to eat with the family. So I got later, so I did not intend on going. Um, I was kind of like, uh, no, I'm a little tired. Um, I don't want to go. But um, Venus was asking, like, just come out for a little bit or whatever. So I initially did go. And we talked um, on my way over there. I ended up taking an Uber over there because after a certain time, I really don't like to go out. So it's like, oh, we'll Uber you. So um, I talked to her for most of the time. Like maybe I didn't talk to her for maybe 10 minutes before I got there. And once I got there, um, she was passed out, which is abnormal for her because that's not something she does at all. Like, there were signs there, but I kind of dismissed them. Like, bills was going off, but I don't know. I felt like I really didn't listen to my instinct like I should have. Um, I tried to talk to her to answer, like, was she okay? She was kind of, like, slurring her words. I really couldn't understand what she was saying. And um, he was like, just let her sleep it off. You know, we was already drinking before, you know, you got here. And she sent me pictures of the food and everything, so I know she had eaten. And us hanging out numerous occasions, like, she can handle her liquor. Like, she she, she did it. <laughs> so, um, so it was really odd to me because I'm like, okay, this is really weird because she, I can't even really understand what she's saying. And I have never seen that like that, like birthdays and things like that. Like she's never been to this capacity, so this isn't normal. So he was like, I'm just going to get her some water. So I had gave her some water, and then we went, um, like, in the front, and we were talking, and then I had a drink. And we were talking and talking and talking about um, our friend that we usually known and things like that. And I remember sitting on the couch. But after that, I don't really remember. Like, I remember bits and pieces. I don't remember Venus coming out of the room because she was, like, passed out on the bed at this, you know, at, in the beginning when I got there. <clears throat> so I don't remember me getting to the room. I don't remember Venus leaving the room. Um, it's just all like a blur. I remember me fighting him off of me. I remember telling him to stop, to leave me alone, that I was feeling sick. I remember um, getting sick, throwing up. But from after that, I don't remember 
absolutely anything after that point. After that, I'm like, I don't know how I got out the bathroom, how I cleaned myself up from throwing it. Like, I, all of that, I have no recollection of that at all. Um, once I woke up, um, I woke up and uh, my underwear and my pants and everything was off, but how it got off, like, none of that, I, I have no memory of it whatsoever. Uh, I woke up in a panic, like, oh, my God, like, what happened? Um, did Venus leave me? Like, did she think this is something that I wanted? Like, like I was in a in a panic. Like, I was, it was a humiliated thing because it's not something, I was in a relationship. So it was extremely difficult. Like, oh, my God, what is happening? And once I, like, got myself together to get up, and so, like, try to get out of there. As I'm looking around, I see um, Venus passed out, like, on the floor, face down, um, in her urine, which I'm like, this is something. This is insane. This something has happened here. And um, when, I don't know if I woke her up or if he woke her up, whatever the case may be, she was, like, dazed. And from there, it's just, like, hazy. Yeah. I... Charlotte remembers more than I do. The last thing I remember was eating, and I remember talking to her, but when I woke up, I didn't remember she had gotten there. So the, I don't even, I remember going and using the washroom, and I don't remember anything after that. So I don't remember her getting there. I don't remember her giving me water. I don't remember anything. The next thing I remember I don't even remember how I woke up or who woke me up or how I woke up, but I remember getting up and I couldn't, like, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't do anything. And when we were, when we actually left and we were in the elevator, that's when I realized that I had peed myself. So I'm like, what happened? Because I'm at someone's house and... I'm the type of person that if I need to pee, I'm going to pee, but I'm not going to pee on myself. And I'm at someone's house, so why wouldn't I have gone, I gone to the bathroom? Like, what happened? And I couldn't remember anything. I, I literally thought that it had just been, like, 10 minutes that I had passed out. And we walked out, and it was light out. You just heard from Charlotte and Venus from the podcast Hashtag Girls Like Us. They are two brave survivors who also endured a drug-facilitated sexual assault by a co-worker. You're going to be hearing more from them throughout this episode, which is about the long-term effects that trauma has on a person, especially after going through sexual assault. They're going to be telling more of their story and how it impacted them. But the point of this episode is to talk about those long-term impacts of sexual assault and going through the trauma of that what it looks like sort of near the beginning and how it can manifest outwards afterwards. But of course, it's not going to be all-inclusive like nothing ever can be. I'm only one person. They're two people. We all have, even though we experienced something really similar, all of us have completely different and also somewhat similar reactions in very different ways. It's all complicated. Everybody handles the situation completely differently. And given that circumstances for this crime are so different, it can be a family member who commits the assault, it can be a close friend, it can be a stranger, and all of these things impact the way that a person will walk through the world afterwards, there's no way that I can cover absolutely everything that might happen to a person after being sexually assaulted. But I think it's important to include some humanity 
to these stories rather than just talking to an academic expert who is Rebecca Campbell in this episode out of Michigan State University who's done a tremendous amount of work on sexual assault research throughout the years. But it's important to talk to survivors and to talk about some other experiences that I've heard from others and some of my own experiences because there's a huge disconnect between hearing about what these effects are in an academic way and then actually experiencing them and having to live through them every single day, how it changes you forever and how unfair that is. There are so many layers and levels to the feelings that you have after being sexually assaulted and especially what happens if you decide to report it or not report it, who you tell and how their reactions are. There are so many levels of betrayal that you feel, so many layers of uncertainty, things that you think about about yourself afterwards, the way it changes, the way you look at everyone in your life afterwards. And it's really hard to talk about that just from research and numbers and statistics. And I think this is an area where talking about personal experiences is really important. But as usual, I do want to contextualize it with research because I think it sets an important tone, an important stage for understanding very common reactions to being sexually assaulted. My name is Rebecca Campbell. I'm a professor of psychology at Michigan State University. I've been studying sexual assault for almost 30 years now, and I've been trying to understand how sexual assault affects victims' health and well-being in the short term and in the long term and how their experiences of disclosing that assault and seeking help from the legal and medical systems in particular affects their health and well-being over time and how rape crisis centers and other types of support programs like sexual assault nurse examiner programs can help support their recovery and maybe um, hopefully undo some of the re-traumatizing experiences they have in seeking help. The first thing that I asked her about was what short-term effects victims of sexual assault might experience after going through what they've been through. So for short-term, there's no one way victims react. I think that's really important to emphasize that we can can go through a list of problems, symptoms, challenges that they have. But I think it's really important to understand that that it's very unique to each individual survivor and what he, she, or they have experienced what kind of supports they have, the extent to which they're still in an environment where they're constantly re-triggered. So for those who've been assaulted in the military or college campuses where you still have to kind of live and work in constant reminders of your of your trauma, it can be very different. So, so with that context in mind, um, a lot of survivors um, experience tremendous fear and anxiety after the assault. Um, feeling, uh, many of them feel self-blame and doubt and are just incredibly hard on themselves with coulda, woulda, shoulda. Many of them experience depression. Um, There's a lot of problems with um, sort of physical health issues in terms of headaches, um, gastrointestinal distress, um, undereating, overeating, headaches, difficulty sleeping, difficulty concentrating. Um, Yeah, so it's it's, it's a really unpleasant, it's really, really unpleasant. For all of what she said, for me at least, I found so much of it to be true. I experienced not being able to sleep, not being able to focus on anything at all or concentrate on anything at all, which is still something I have a huge issue with. It's impacted my memory. And definitely at first, I immediately lost weight because I couldn't even remember to eat. 
I just wasn't thinking clearly at all and nothing that was automatic seemed like it was an automatic process to me anymore. Getting out of bed, getting dressed, eating, all of that seemed like an impossible task. It was so difficult. And then of course what she's saying about the triggering situation of having to live in the same place where it happened, for me being on campus, being there every single day, and especially before anybody knew what was going on and I had to walk around acting like everything was fine, that was very, very difficult. And considering that the majority of rape survivors do get sexually assaulted by somebody that they know, the likelihood that they're going to be in an environment where they're constantly triggered and re-traumatized by their surroundings is really frustrating that that's something that we have to live with. While, again, nothing happens to the rapist. But we've talked a lot in depth about experiences in the short term, so I moved on to ask her more about long-term experiences and the impact of trauma Long-term, what does it look like after a year? What does it look like after two years? What's it going to look like after 10 years and maybe for the rest of your life? So in general, we know that most survivors um, do have negative long-term psychological and physical health effects. Um, Many survivors um, have post-traumatic stress disorder, clinical levels of depression and anxiety, um, struggle with suicidal ideation, suicide attempts and chronic health problems, uh, body pain, um, muscular, so muscular skeletal pain, gastrointestinal problems, um, headaches, some experience uh, dysregulation in gynecological health care. So, you know, day in, day out, again, some pretty significant psychological and physical health effects. The extent to which victims experience those are determined by so many different factors. It's kind of hard to, to outline what the exact trajectories would be. For survivors who have really good social support in their lives, so some really key people that they can talk to, friends, family, coworkers, um, that can mitigate those um, health effects if they are able to connect with counseling and advocacy and support, such as at a rape crisis center, a counseling center, employee assistance program that will generally help mitigate some of those problems. But so many survivors not only don't seek help, but they also just don't even tell anybody what happened. And we've talked about this before, there are a million reasons not to tell anybody about what happened to you. But considering that she brought up social support, I wanted to bring Charlotte and Venus back in to talk a little bit more about their experiences going through this long term and what kind of support they had as well as what kind of support they didn't have and what kind of negative reactions they may have received. I I don't think I had it as bad as Charlotte. I think that, I don't know if it's because I'm so hard-headed and I just always say what's on my mind and, like, I tell you how it is. Nobody ever really, like, nobody questioned me. They just took it and they were like, are you okay? What do you need? Or if they didn't know how to react, they just didn't say anything and let me talk. The only person that kind of did that was our boss, but by the time that we told him, I had already told everybody else. So what he thought and what he said, like, just made me more mad and I kind of didn't care. Mm-hmm. It was, I guess, after, like, his little comments that kind of were like, you're disgusting as a human being. Um, for me, I, I had it um, for the guy that I was in a relationship with, um, he was like, why was I over there? Why did I go over there? Um, pretty much like I brought it on myself going over there. 
Um, even though I'm saying, like, this is my coworker, this is somebody I've hung out with before, I wasn't alone, like, I was out on a date or something, but all of that was irrelevant, and um, it affected our relationship. Um, I got a lot of, why was I out, well, why did I go over there type of thing, so um, it's kind of like, at the end of the day, okay, I went over here, but that doesn't make it right what happened. Like, I, I don't care if I went over there but naked. It doesn't make it right for somebody to drug me and sexually assault me. Like, that doesn't, it doesn't justify anything. And I feel like um, other victims are worse as victim blaming. Like, oh, it happened to me too, but, you know, we'll get over it type of thing. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, that's not how it works. So I feel like that, the relationship, and other victims are the worst people (laughs) in far as victim blackness, which is sad. I think it's so striking how differently we all experience the aftermath of rape, and especially the kind of response we got from who we disclosed to. But some of the similarities were also really interesting and a little bit depressing. I had noticed that friends of mine who I didn't know had a similar experience, who had not dealt with it, who had buried it and gone on with their lives, definitely have not been a good support for me over time. Definitely tried to get me to just stop talking about it, move on, and get over it when that's not how I was going to pursue this situation. I got responses from some of my best friends telling me things like, well, imagine what it's like in other countries where it's a million times worse. Having people raped in one country doesn't make it any better than having people raped in another country. There's This is not like a comparison of who has it worse for being raped. This is, rape is rampant around this entire world, and really none of us should be having to deal with it. And no, it doesn't make a difference if you report it in the United States or a different country, because nobody takes it seriously anywhere where they're supposed to. So a lot of those initial conversations were really frustrating and really difficult. It's been interesting to me that my biggest supports outside of my family and a few advocates have been people who I didn't know before this, people who I've met in survivor committees and people who I've met in advocacy groups and people who I've met on the internet, much like Charlotte and Venus, who have been through this situation and decided to take this and change it and do something about it. It's really difficult to talk to people who don't have the same mentality And it's really hard to realize that some of those people aren't going to be a good and healthy support for you. And sure, you can be friends with them and continue to have a friendship, but for me, it's changed a lot of my friendships, and I think it does to a lot of other survivors too. Even though I've tried to maintain friendships with people who are close to me, who I told about this experience to, who didn't have good reactions back, um, not that they didn't believe me, but more in the vein of, why don't you just let this go? Or it could have been worse, this happened to someone else I know, and like, that's not what you went through. It just completely changes the friendship. Or I guess it makes it seem more like how it really was all along, but you never know until you go through something adverse. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, definitely it tests your friendships, and you find out who really cares, who's really supportive, and who would be supportive, but they just didn't deal with what they went through, and so they don't want you to either, because it becomes too difficult for them to go through it as well. And that's understandable. Everyone goes through it differently, but the impact that it has on you socially is, I think, even greater than the physical impact that it has on you in so many ways. 
But then I was also curious about Charlotte and Venus's experience in reporting, if they had reported, who they reported to, who they saw first, and what that process was like for them. What kind of response did they get? I did. Because once I realized that I didn't remember anything, and I realized that mine and Charlotte's symptoms were pretty much the same. Like the first thing I did when I got to the hospital was I was like, I went out last night, I was like, and I lost everything. I have no idea what happened to me. I have no recollection of it. So she asked me, like, Did you, do you think that you were sexually assaulted? And I said, I don't know. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. So she's like, do you want us to screen you for a rape kit? And I said, yes. So then she told me that um, she was going to have to call the police because a rape kit was going to be done. And that's how that ended up happening where I had a rape kit. Because I had no recollections. I couldn't tell you if it happened or if it didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. Charlotte, Charlotte was added to my police report after the fact. Because I think we were just, like, I think we just blame ourselves as victims. Because even when I was reporting it to the police, I was like, what is going to happen? Like, how is this going to affect them? And, like, now I, like, mm-hmm. sit there and I'm like, why would I, like, you shouldn't have even asked that. But at that moment, I'm like, what if it didn't happen? Like, what if, like, because I'm still daisy, I'm still sick, and I'm trying to recollect a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm being poked and pulled, and everybody's coming in, and I'm just like, I don't even know. Right. So for me, I, when I went to the hospital, I told them that I was out the night before to test me for drugs because I felt like I was drugged. So I guess the doctor's response was that was different from the response that she got, like, oh, you had a wild night. And I'm like, it wasn't a wild night. Someone drugged me, and I did have, like, bruises and stuff, but that was just the extent of it. They just tested for drugs and then brought back, like, there's nothing in your system. And if there was um, drugs, then it would have been out your system already. So we got two separate experiences. You know um, sorry, like, there was something that I remember the other day, and I, I don't even tell you. When we were, when they were taking my report, when the police showed up to take my report, it was a female cop, and it was uh, a, a male. And she was Hispanic, and he was African American. And I, like, now I'm really bothered by it. I don't think at the moment I grasp it, but, like, if, if you keep going, like, you remember bits and pieces. She mm-hmm. was, like, so judgmental, mm-hmm. and he was, like, so compassionate. He was, like, no, like, he had no right of doing this. Like, this is so wrong in so many levels. And she was just so, like, oh, I guess, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, so judgmental. And, like, I think at that moment I didn't realize it because I was just so out of it. But the other day I was thinking about it, and I was just, like, wow. Mm-hmm. Like, you're so lucky I was so out of it. You're right. <laughs> So some typical amazing responses like, oh, you had a wild night. No, she didn't have a wild night. She went to a co-worker's house and he drugged her and raped her. That's fun for nobody, except for the rapist, apparently, which is so sick. I still can't even wrap my mind around it, but that's the response that people get when they report. I asked Venus a little bit more about her very different experience with having two different detectives there and what exactly was going on in that situation. This reality of having two completely different reactions to the same crime by two professionals who should both be trauma-informed and both understand it's not the victim's fault for being drugged and raped was really interesting to me. And she told me a little bit more about that experience. Um, like, they asked me, um, like, 
how, why was I over there? So I told him, I was like, oh, we were, you know, we were coworkers, we were just hanging out. And he was like, he, he said, he's like, it doesn't matter why you were over there. Like, this shouldn't have happened. And she's like, well, why were you out? Like, it, it was a weekday. Like, why were you out? Like, why did you drink? And he was more of like, it doesn't matter why she drank or he could have had a glass of water. Like, it doesn't matter. And she was like, oh, well, I guess, like, we'll look into it. And he was more of like, he was actually writing down stuff. And she was just standing there like, okay. And I'm just, like, I was in such a daze. And I was like, had I been in my five senses, like, And even though this may seem like something that could be considered more short-term, that kind of response stays with someone forever. You never forget that. You never forget the impact of how that felt when someone said that to you. And it changes the way that you think about yourself. Every single time that you think about maybe telling someone else, what if they respond the same exact way? What if they're asking you why you went over there and why you were drinking and what you were drinking and why did you do this on Wednesday? Like, oh, would it have been better if I was over there on a Saturday? My bad. Like... It's so crazy the number of things that people will ask rather than why did this guy drug you and rape you? What is so wrong with his messed up brain that this is what he does for fun? But nobody, nobody ever questions that. They just put the victim on trial. And it just blows my mind too because let's say that this had happened on a Saturday and he went to her house and they were just drinking water. What would the questions have been like from this female detective then? She would have said, well, why was he at your house? Why were you hanging out on a Saturday? Saturday is a day where people go on dates. Why would you have water with him? Like, that, weren't you leading him on? It's just like, no matter what, when you're in this situation, it's going to be flipped on the victim. Nobody is questioning what the rapist is doing with his drugs and his roofies and drugging and raping people. Nobody's questioning that. And it's so crazy to me that these victim-blaming questions still come up because no matter how you spin it, you can always find a reason to ask a victim about their behavior. And I still don't understand why nobody is asking the rapist about their behavior and why they choose to do what they do. It doesn't make any sense. So anyway, given that I had reported and a lot of other people who report have exponentially worse experiences than people who never say anything at all, I asked Rebecca Campbell to talk a little bit more about the reporting process and how that can have an impact long-term on victims who report. Some of the things that we know exacerbate these would be ongoing involvement with the criminal justice system or for uh, campus sexual assault survivors' participation in the Title IX process. Those tend to be very lengthy. There's constant reminders, reopening of, um, of the memories as there's successive interviews and um, successive interviews, successive meetings, excessive hearings. So, you know, just when a survivor thinks, you know, that they may be, you know, kind of on a you know, even keel, they get an email saying we need you to come to this meeting or that hearing. So, um, you know, the constant reminders um, reactivate traumatic memories, make it very difficult for survivors. And what survivors experience in these meetings is often re-traumatizing of having to relive the trauma to um, be questioned over and over and over again about their behavior, their choices. Um, a lot of this, the formal reporting process centers on the behavior of the victim rather than the offender. Um, that's not fair. That's not reasonable. The victim isn't on trial. The victim isn't under investigation. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of law enforcement and Title IX processes really aren't offender-focused. 
meaning that they're investigating the um, alleged behavior of the offender. They're investigating the victim and their behavior and their credibility. So it, it does make it very hard for survivors to really uh, heal from this when this is constantly being reopened and their, their own behavior and character is constantly challenged. There's so much to unpack there. First of all, I just want to point out that the character of the victim is constantly being scrutinized and challenged, and that doesn't weigh heavily on anyone more than it does on the victim. You start to question yourself. You start to question the very core of who you are. And that kind of damage is not something that can be undone in days or months or even a year or two years or three years. It changes you forever. I've talked about it a little bit before, but even the normal things that anybody else your age would do is something that you now have to consider and you just wonder, what is it going to look like to this person and that person? What does it say about me? How does this make me feel about myself? Do I have the right to be doing this? It's damaging and detrimental to the psyche in a way that can't adequately be expressed in words. And with the ongoing process, it's completely true. I think that when people hear the word trigger sometimes and being used in this context of finding something triggering, they don't understand it the way that it's actually meant. Being triggered by something doesn't make you weak. It makes you think back to a situation that you've been in that was painfully detrimental to you, such as this. And being re-traumatized is completely part of the process of reporting. And I hate even using the word re-traumatized because it's like, it makes it sound like it's an inevitable part of the process when it's not. It's a completely separate traumatization. It's a completely separate victimization that is done on behalf of people who are supposed to be helping you, which makes it that much worse. It's such a deep betrayal. And of course, when one person or one institution like that betrays you, it makes you question every single other institution and every single other person. And it makes you wonder how badly you're going to be betrayed by the next person who claims that they're going to help you. Because trust me, it never ends. The people who say they're on your side are likely not. They're either doing it because they have a couple of things they need to check off on a box before they get it off their desk, like the police, or maybe they're doing it for the money and once they realize that your rapist doesn't have any right now, even though it's completely not true, they decide that they weren't ever in it for the right reasons and they leave you hanging at the last second with nobody else to run to. These are selfish people and they help no one. And running into these people time and time again shakes you to your core. It makes you question everything about the world. It completely changes your worldview. If you remember any of the interviews with Dwayne Bowers who talked about trauma, it does completely change your worldview. And I think that outside of the physical impacts that it has on you and the emotional impacts, a lot of that comes from these social interactions that are so damaging and that you can't understand unless, unless you've lived it. And to give you an idea of just how long this goes on for and how traumatizing it is, I reported two and a half years ago. That's when this happened to me. My rape kit was not tested for almost a year and a half later, and it's still not complete two and a half years later. I still get emails from time to time saying, hey, we're going to close your case, and me saying, um, no, you're not. You didn't do anything yet, so keep going. And every single time I get something like that, it just hurts. It's like this insane roller coaster. One of my brothers at the beginning of this whole experience gave me some phenomenal advice, but unfortunately, it's been pretty much impossible to follow. He told me that this would be a long process and told me not to let the lows get me too low and not to let the highs get me too high, to try to stay grounded, stay somewhere in the middle. 
it's brilliant. He was totally right. But the issue with that is when you're going through this process, these things punch you in the gut. You don't stand a fighting chance of not getting too low when somebody tells you that these past two years of pain that you've gone through have been for nothing. And the highs can be high, but you quickly learn that they shouldn't. So I guess you just sort of hover between low and lower. For example, being texted that your rapist is under arrest and feeling like that's such a big high, something that you set out to accomplish was done because you've finally successfully protected other women from him. And then two hours later, getting a text message that says, call me, I had to let him go. That could be an example of those highs being a little bit too high and relying on them too much and then the agony of that being ripped away from you. When you were told it was a certain thing, that's not something that's easy to overcome. And this was just at the beginning. So I learned early on not to trust the highs too much. And I haven't. And unfortunately, that thought process and thought pattern has extended to every single other area of my life too. You completely stop trusting the high points of life because you know they're just a phone call or an email away from being taken from you. And spending two and a half years of your life living under a microscope really makes you rethink everything you do. It makes you feel like you're constantly doing something wrong when really what happened was someone did something horrifically wrong to you and never suffered a consequence for it. And of course, that's a whole other level of betrayal in another way that it challenges your entire worldview. How is it possible that we live in a world where nobody cares what happened to you? Where nobody cares that this person is just out there using a fake name and drugging and raping other people and just nobody cares. How can that possibly be? But that's the reality of the situation. So a month into reporting, I get told that he's arrested and then I get told two hours later that he's not for reasons that I am so mad I can't even get into right now. And then it doesn't end there. Three months later, you go out and you have some drinks. And of course, that means that you're just a raging alcoholic or so it says in your police report. Doesn't even matter that you weren't even drinking heavily on the night that you were drugged and raped. But apparently, it's the most important detail in the world that three months after being raped, you had some drinks. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. You have to think about every single thing you do and why you shouldn't be the one on trial or under investigation when the most that the police have done is a Google search about this guy. Which, by the way, you can't even find him by that now because, like I said, he goes by a different name. But anyway, your detective will call you or you'll come up with something that you wonder about. And every month or every other month, you get another phone call. Very upsetting. Continuing on the whole entire process while the school process is going on and they're constantly calling you and telling you they're extending it for no reason and violating your Title IX rights. But nobody cares. Nobody does anything. You find out that the school decides seven months later that he violated policy and you think that that's a good thing but then you read what it was actually for and you realize they got it all wrong you realize that he's not going to be working there anymore but then you also start to think that probably he wasn't even actually fired they never did the right thing they never bothered to and he just got away with it with no consequence but that's just one of the cases that you had open. The campus part is over, but now you still have the police investigation going on because your drug test hasn't even been tested yet. That's still something that's just been sitting in the car from place to place because they don't even bother refrigerating the sample seven months later after it's completely degraded. And then 11 months later, they finally test it and they're like, oh, look, nothing came back in it. Like, no kidding. 
So that's another phone call that you have to sit through, another piece of news that you have to sit with and understand that even though the school completely screwed up and threw away the sample that could have shown a date rape drug, didn't test for the right things at all, now you have the second test that you got done later that you already knew wasn't going to say anything, but it still kind of hits you hard when you find out that it really didn't. Because there's always a piece of you that holds on to the hope that something is going to pull through for you. But it never does. So then a year goes by and you're 12 months deep into this and some things have changed, but mostly not a lot, especially in terms of the police alleged investigation that they should be doing, but really aren't. The phone, the only piece of evidence they bothered collecting, is still not back and you still have no idea when, if ever, it's going to come back. The rape kit still hasn't been tested. You still don't know how many people were involved that night. You think about it all the time. It's not something you just get off your mind. It weighs on you every single day. 15 months later, you finally get an email that they're going to start testing your rape kit. 17 months later, you find out that there's sperm in there that can't be accounted for, and so they need to do additional testing. 19 months later, they tell you that they're out of ideas, they don't know what to do, and unless you start being honest about who you had sex with, which of course isn't the case and didn't happen, then they can't do anything anymore. That's the worst one. Over a year and a half later, you're the one who was investigated. The rapist was never investigated at all, and everything falls back on you. You're the one who suddenly becomes not credible. And all of the horrible things that they said about you are things that you start to internalize too, and it's so ironic because your detective said that he would never tell someone that they, he didn't believe them because he knows how important that first interaction is. What he fails to realize is that every interaction is important and that he's a hypocrite. So then they realize that they're right, that they didn't do anything once you bring it up as they're trying to tell you that they're going to close your case. And they say, oh yeah, maybe we should actually test your entire rape kit. Like, go figure. Yes, maybe you should do your job. So they send that back to be tested. And here we are nine months later, still no news at all. Tell me how you would get that off of your mind. You come to a point where you either have to give up completely and stop thinking about it and bury it or... You just try to live your life as normally as possible, but it's still always in your head, completely changing you. You live your life completely differently, even though you don't want to. You hold on to hope, even though you think it's stupid. I have wished for the past two and a half years to stop holding on to any hope about this, but for some dumb reason, I just cannot get it out of my head that something somehow is going to work out. That people will be protected from this rapist, and that all of this won't have just been to completely destroy me as a person. That's the impact that the investigation alone has in part had on me. I don't have enough hours in the day to talk about how deeply it's destroyed me and the way that I view the world. But I guess it's a decent snippet. I will say it has otherwise caused me to become fiercely protective of myself to a fault at times, which is not ideal. And anybody who hasn't been through this kind of situation or who doesn't truly understand trauma is definitely not going to get it. I've made mistakes, which I knew were mistakes, held myself accountable for them, and then still had people who witnessed these mistakes tell me that everybody goes through problems and they're going through a breakup right now, so I should probably get my shit together. And one thing that really bothers me too is that there seems to be a very sore misunderstanding in the world of what actual trauma is and what going through normal difficult life experiences are. For example, going through school and having a difficult time there is not the same as actually enduring a traumatic event. 
And you'll always get people who are going to say, don't compare your hard experience to another person's hard experience. But there is an actual difference between real trauma and normal life circumstances that everybody is going to face at some point in time. And some of the other ways that this has all impacted me are still too embarrassing for me to even talk about or acknowledge out loud to strangers through a podcast. So I won't. But trust me when I tell you I have made so many mistakes and done so many things that are regrettable ever since this that are completely out of character for me, including that, you know, part in my police report where I got three drunk three months after being raped, which, you know, is normal for most people and could be understood by anyone with a brain in their head who can understand anything about human behavior and trauma. But I think that the bottom line I want to say with that is that outside of actually being raped and the trauma of that and outside of enduring abuse from the system and the trauma of that. Also, the way that you heal and cope with things and try to just get through life when this is open and constantly hanging over your head and you know that you're living on completely unstable ground and that you could get a call that shakes your world any single day that you're living now. You cope in ways that are not necessarily always healthy and you judge yourself for it which makes everything exponentially worse. But that is the reality of an open investigation that nobody bothers to actually finish over the course of two and a half years. And it makes you that much more angry that all this suffering was for nothing. It's literally for nothing. And you're st- it's just like a never-ending thing. It can't be adequately explained or expressed in any way. I asked Rebecca Campbell if she had any experience in her research of being able to figure out the impact of specifically victims constantly being questioned about their character and questioning themselves about their character after being assaulted and what kind of impact that has on them long-term. And here's what she said. It's certainly something that survivors have highlighted in research studies I've done that that's one thing about the reporting process that they find difficult. But it's pretty challenging in research to really parse, you know, this specific thing is worse than this specific thing. It's very much a global, it's all pretty darn bad and it's all pretty darn hurtful. Um, that the, it is the combination of the constant remembering, the constant re-triggering, the constant uh, reliving the assault, going through specific details, and again, having sort of at each step their own behavior and character and decision-making questioned and challenged over and over again. So it's really kind of the the package, unfortunately, if you will, of what happens um, that, that can be so upsetting for survivors. It is all bad and it is all upsetting. And so I asked her if she's been able to, in her research, parse out the difference between being harmed from being raped and how the victim is harmed from reporting to the system and if you can really separate those two things out and how you can tell what the measurable differences are. Yeah, it, it is possible. I've done um, studies comparing um, survivors from um, similar communities. So they live in, um, you know, sort of by and large the same geographic area um, and have compared those who um, did and did not report and engage in formal systems and the survivors who reported and had negative experiences had elevated levels of post-traumatic stress symptomatology above and beyond what the comparison sample did of survivors who also were assaulted but chose not to report. Um, that's one way to, to answer that question. And again, um, the research is, is indicating that when, when disclosure and help-seeking goes poorly, So they're reporting to the police, they're reporting to Title IX, it's not going well, 
they're having a lot of that re-traumatization that we see elevated psychological distress in comparison to survivors who chose not to um, disclose and report. And obviously that's pretty problematic, right? Because if what we're trying to do in the big picture is encourage survivors to come forward to report so that we can be um, pursuing accountability, and again, lots of different ways to pursue accountability. It's not just in the criminal justice system. Um, that's, that's a pretty big ask of survivors because it's essentially saying, you know, we need you to come forward and we need you to do this. We need you to do this promptly. We need you to do this right away. We need you to do this with 100% engagement. And it's going to be very upsetting. It's going to be re-traumatizing. It's going to increase your psychological and physical health distress. It's a big ask. And when you put it that way, you honestly just wonder who in their right mind would report this. You know it's going to make you worse off in the long run. You know it's going to make your life harder. And you know you're going to suffer negative health effects because of it. And I think that's why it's so important in part to believe survivors who do come forward. There is literally nothing positive that a person can gain from this at all. It can only make their lives and their health and their well-being worse. It's a tremendous ask that I wouldn't wish on anybody to have to go through. And really, the harm has already been done to you, so what's in it for you other than protecting others? That's why victims come forward. Charlotte and Venus echoed this too. Um, I didn't really like the experience, and I told Venus after, like, after I met with him and everything. Um, it was more of a, like, what happened, um... I felt like he was judgmental just by some of the things he was saying. Um, I didn't like his energy. Um, like I was telling him this, he was like, so he Ubered you from all the way to the side of town? I'm like, what, what does that have to do with anything? Like, what does that matter? He was ask, asking, like, about our background, and I was like, I guess he was wondering, like, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> and why am I with this young girl or something? I guess I'm like, oh, yeah, we work together and we hang out together. Like, we have a great, you know, bond and everything. So it was just like the questions that he was asking, like, well, did it start off as a yes and then turn to a no type of thing? And I'm like, no, it was always a no. I was in a relationship. So there was never any type of me leading him on or anything like that. Um. So I was telling him the things, but it just was like one in one ear, not the other. And I was like, I have pictures of the bruises and everything that I do have. And he not once asked me to see him or anything like that. Like the questions, it just, it really, some of them are the same pointless. So I, I really did not like it whatsoever. There was no follow-up. Even after all, like, together, to say, like, hey, what's going on? Can I get a copy of the report? And then he was like, oh, you can't get an actual copy of the report because it's still under investigation. If it's my report, why can't I get a copy of the investigation? And he called back. And that was, how long ago was that? Like, months ago. So I just feel like he's not invested. I don't know if he feel like, I don't know if it's our combination of I don't, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. But he definitely didn't seem like he was going to really pursue this case from the questions and things that he was asking. Then he was like, how long do me and her know each other? Like, what's our history? And I was like, what, what does that matter? 
Right. Like, are, do you think we're making this up or something? Because what, what are we actually gaining from making something up like this? There's nothing for us to gain from this. And apart from that, they also talk about the way that it has impacted them long term. Um, it definitely has impacted my um, daily life. The whole um, relationship thing that was very, like, it was like on top of pain, then it's another pain. Like, he's telling me, like, why did I go over there? Like, it's my fault. And, um, like, I've, I often, like, blame myself, like, I should have, like, pursued this and said, hey, do a rape kit, because I feel like I had the evidence. Um, so I often, like, blame myself, but it's not moving forward with that. Um, I did go to my own doctor, but still, at that point, even had I did the rape kit, I took a shower that morning. So I washed away my evidence for the most part. So I feel bad because I feel like I had that. I had that missing link. Like I had the, what do you call, nail in the coffin type of thing because I had the bruises. I had the everything, the clothes off type of thing. So um, I often like wish I had of did things differently. Like so it's just a constant like every day, you know, often I'm thinking about the what if, if I did this, if I did this type of thing. So it definitely affects me. You say it's a day-to-day process trying to get through it. Some days are good, some days not. With Charlotte and I, when that comes, it's a little bit different. What's well, a lot different because I don't remember. I don't remember anything. So in a way, I want to say that I can block it off because I don't remember. And she remembers, like, bits and pieces, like, simply alone, like, fighting him off. So if I did fight him off, I don't remember. But I don't. I can't imagine that I even did because I was so passed out. I was mm-hmm. so passed out. So it's that, like, like where we're at, it's so different just because me, I'm at the point where I don't care. I, I've made my peace that law enforcement is not going to do anything about it, so I'm just going to keep moving. And I'm going to, like, if I have to plaster his face all over, I will plaster his face all over. Like, that's just how I'm going to help myself and I'm going to help everybody else because, obviously, law enforcement does not care. And that's just kind of where I'm at. Like, cool, don't do your job, but I'm going to make sure that everybody else is protected. So if I have to speak up and plaster his face everywhere, I will do it. And when I asked them what they had to say, if they could say anything about how other people are responding to their process of healing or what they wish people could understand about their process of healing and going through this trauma daily, they had a lot of really great insightful things to say. I think what people don't really understand when this happens to you is that this takes a piece of you. Whether you remember it or you don't, it takes a piece of you. And... They want you to just, like, kind of keep going, and that doesn't happen. Like, I don't need to have an explanation as to why I don't feel good today. I don't need to have an explanation as to why I don't want to do a certain thing, and I was so okay before because I have triggers. I have little things that before this didn't matter and now I overthink it and now I have triggers and I think people need to be a little bit more understanding understanding and I I get it that nobody owes you anything but at least just don't be like 
oh, like, you should just be over it. Or, like, oh, I guess, like, you were okay with it before. And it's like, yeah, I was okay with it before, but I'm not now. Like, people change. Even if it wasn't this situation, people change. So, yeah, people do need to be more understanding that this, you live, you have to live with this for the rest of your life. Like, this one incident literally haunts the rest of your life. I would have to agree with uh, what Lena said. Just be more understanding because I don't think people are really understanding. They think that um, you're supposed to, I guess, get over it quickly. Like you got a cold or something. Like, oh, you'll be okay, <laughs> you know, next week type of thing. It's just they're kind of dismissive of the feelings that you're having. It's not something. It's it's traumatizing. It causes PTSD. So it's not something that you just get over. That's like somebody going to war. They're not going to forget just because they're home. They're not going to forget all of the things that they've seen out there. They're not going to see, they're not going to forget the images of the people that they've seen dead. Like it doesn't go away. And I think that's what people need to understand. It's a traumatic experience and it doesn't just go away. Yes, you heal, but it never goes away. And I think people need to realize that. After being raped, you do feel like you're missing a piece of yourself. Things are gone. Things change. Things about you just aren't the same anymore. And they never will be. But on top of that, you also have things that are added to your life, like really miserable things that you wish weren't there. As much that is taken from you, you are also given all of these horrible things that you don't want to have as part of your life. Nobody wants panic attacks. Nobody wants anxiety. Nobody wants depression. Nobody wants these awful thoughts about the world that they never had before. But rapists put that weight of the world on you. And you can't just shake it off and it doesn't just go away. And especially when your case is still open, it's something that's always, always, always on your mind. It took away the good parts of your life and it left you with a hole that hurts, that's filled with other things that continue to hurt you all the time. And it changes you and it twists you and your character becomes something that it wasn't before. And even though your core might still be the same, it's really hard to get to the core of who you are. It's taken me so long to even get back to having the sense of intuition that I used to have, to stop believing that everyone in the world is out to get me, when I know that's not true. It's not paranoid, it's just protective. You just can't see clearly when your head is being held underwater, and that's what this process feels like every single day. This is going to be one of my very last episodes for this podcast, and I really want to thank Charlotte and Venus with Girls Like Us for going on this and talking so much about their experience with me. So thank you, ladies. You're amazing, and you're brave, and I'm so inspired by your activism and everything that you've done after what's happened to you. The next episode is going to be about post-traumatic growth, and I'm going to be speaking with an expert on that who's going to be talking about how some people go through a process of healing and then turn their pain into activism, which I think is really cool and important. And then I'm going to be wrapping up this whole season. There were a few things that I didn't get to touch on that I probably will add on at a different point, like the civil process and a little bit more about workplace incidents and how those are handled. But for now, I'm coming to a point where I just need to wrap this up for my own well-being and my own sake of time since I have so much going on. So if you have any stories that you want to share, go to survivingjustice.org and be sure to submit those um, and I'll definitely put them in my last few couple of episodes. Thanks again so much for listening.